Welcome to Untangling Christianity, episode 45. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. We hope you'll come along for the conversation, and you can be part of that conversation by leaving comments at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 45. I'm John Polstra. And I'm Greg Montes. This week, we're continuing our discussion of Misunderstood God by Darren Hubbard. This week finds us touching on chapter four and continuing on into chapter five. From chapter four, the, the ideas on the bottom of page 42, the very bottom, we've been taught to believe that fear of God's wrath is what brings us to repentance and this whole fear idea. Yeah, you know, you know, and then going on to, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then and the two thirds of the way down the page on 43, this, my life changed when I began to understand that my heart is the desire of his heart. It's the center of his attention. Yeah, I really, I really moved back away from that a fair bit, you know, and it's not my heart, it's my whole self. And I'm not sort of just mincing words. I, th- I think there's this kind of, the only word that's coming to my, my mind, and I, 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 I don't mean it with the strength that the word often carries, but I can't think of a better word, is distortion. Maybe misrepresentation is a better word. My biggest fear in reading this book is that it's generally going in the right direction, but it's, he's either not formulated or misformulated some things that are ultimately going to, one, uh, estrange people that need to hear him, or two, it's not going to make sense to, to people that need to hear him. So he's either going to uh, turn off his audience on the one hand, groups one part of his audience, or he's just not going to connect properly with, with another part of his potential audience. I think that's that's really, for me, that's really sad because I think this book has so much that's valuable in it. I think it's got so much good stuff. Honestly, the the thing that that strikes me the most and that makes me, I think, the most frustrated is that I think he's done a lot of personal work, but I think that personal work has to be matched with, for instance, if he's talking about the Bible and Christianity, he's got to be matched with exegetical work. So, you know, those one-star reviews that are saying there's not enough, you know, and maybe they're going a bit further than saying there's not enough uh, scriptural reference in here. Uh, I certainly wouldn't discount the work because, uh, and I wouldn't write it off because it's quote-unquote not biblical or whatever because it's not quoting uh, s- biblical texts here, there, and everywhere. But I do think some of this stuff is really, it's weakened because he hasn't done the work. And I think there's other areas where he hasn't done the work. And I'm not being, you know, critical of him as a uh, as a writer so much as, you know, I think there's a this is a fantastic task and it's really important and he's really contributed a great deal and it, the contribution could have been rock solid and I think instead it's 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 shaky and that's too bad because people need to hear this I think it can really help people where I want to go is I don't want to necessarily pick apart his presentation as okay this this gets an A this gets a B this gets a C I think it might be more interesting to say okay here's a theme or here's a concept that he's presented we see this in other places, and here's why it sounds good or sounds true, but ultimately doesn't work out or doesn't square with the Bible. Sure. I totally agree with you. Although I, th- I think there's a bit of the first, the former in, in doing the latter. But well, I, I guess it's just for me, as I look at this and as I weigh up what he's saying and as I weigh up the, you know, he's trying to clear stuff away. 
saying this stuff doesn't work. It's not helpful. It's not valid. And he's trying to clear a path to get to what is valid. I'm on the journey with him. I'm on that same track with him. I think a lot of the things he's trying to clear away, are, I think, need to be cleared away. But where he's ultimately getting to, I think, is a position that concerns me. And I think that um, I remember being, um, I remember being in my, um, I took jujitsu for a couple of years, and I time and time again, the same thing came up. And and I'd be, you know, you know, you're working with your partner. Uh, you're trying to apply this move that the the sensei is teaching you, and I'm there, and I'm whatever. I've got this guy pinned, or you know, he's he's working with me, right? We're we're working together, but he's pinned, but he's not really pinned. And and I come, you know, the sensei walks by, and he's like, "How's it going?" And I say, "Well, you know, um, I don't think that if this were live, he'd still be on the ground." And he said, "Well, yeah." How about you take your hand and you twist it like a few degrees this way and you think about pointing your middle finger more towards the middle of his back. And I would do that and he would scream. The guy on the ground would scream <laughs> like, you know, and I'd be like, okay, whoa. You know, so it was this, this very minor tweaks. And this is, I guess, what I'm getting at. For some of this stuff to be effective, I don't think it has to be uh, what this sensei was teaching me was so utterly precise that nobody could get it unless they'd mastered it for years. It was that he's telling me this for the first time, or maybe the second time or the third time, and it, it takes 10 times or 15 times. So it's a little bit of practice, not like complete expertise, right? But I guess what I'm saying here is that I don't think that some of what Darren's doing displays enough finesse to actually get the job done. I know that for me reading that, reading what he's got here from before I had my experience of coming back to Christianity as an agnostic, this certainly wouldn't cut it for me. Maybe you might say he's not writing to agnostics. Well, okay. But I think he is writing to people. I mean, on the back cover, (laughs) have you been lied to about God? Could this be why the majority of Christians admit to being miserable and frustrated in their spiritual lives? He's writing to miserable and frustrated Christians. Well, you know, these people have something in common with people who are agnostic. It's just not quite working out for them. And I think that if it is going to work out, it's like the example of my sensei saying, turn that a few degrees and point it a little bit more this way. And then you see a result. You see the impact. And and I guess... I am hesitant about some of the things that Darren has said because I don't think that ultimately they're going to work out the way that I've experienced that they did. And I needed that. I needed that in my life in order for Christianity to, to reconcile with my experience, to, to live up to its claims, to be something that I thought was real and valid. And, and I, I sincerely believe that it is, it is completely real and fully valid. And I would want other people to have that perception to, to verify for themselves and say, Hey, yeah, you know what? This is, this is real. And, and if I'm going to help them along that road, then I want to be the best signpost and guide that I can be. And I'm not saying that Darren's not trying to be the best that he can be, but I, I worry. And I, in my honest opinion, some of the things he's saying here, Although they're leading in the right direction, I think they're giving those final little, like my sensei, 
with his, his, his last little bit of advice. You got it all right, Greg, except for this. And when you do this, it brings it all together. And I think bringing it all together is something that I worry that by the time I get to the end of this book, we're not going to get there. So to, so to sum up where you're at so far with the book is you're afraid it's, it's not going to completely deliver at the end. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that it's going, this is my, this is my biggest fear, I guess. It's going in totally the right direction and it's going to present it in the wrong way. But we don't know yet. I don't, I don't think we know yet. (laughs) I don't think we know yet. But, but one of the things on the other hand, like, I guess another way of saying it is, listen, if I tell everybody that Christianity is about going to heaven or going to hell, and it fails to deliver, well, that's okay, because I think it's wrong to begin with. I think that orientation is wrong. It's completely wrong. So, you know what? Of course, I think you're going to fail to deliver. I think you're going to fail to be satisfying. I think you're going to fail to be convincing and persuasive to people who are who don't already hold that view. Right? You're talking, you're preaching to the choir. But with this book, I think it has the potential to change people's perspectives. This is not a book that is preaching to the choir. This is a book that is going out right off the bat, you know, to say it in, in a kind of a, an ironic way, it's looking to make disciples and is looking to do that amongst Christians. And I think that needs to happen. And I'm mostly serious about that. You know, that's a little bit of a inflammatory language. I'm not suggesting that, that Christians, and, and as soon as you have this idea of make disciples amongst Christians, you're, most people, I think, would jump to the improper conclusion that I'm talking about their quote-unquote salvation or their, their, but I'm talking about their relationship with God. I'm talking about how they understand God, what that relationship is about. And the conversion that I would think that most people need, most Christians need, is a conversion away from an idea that Christianity is about uh, punishment and reward, hell and heaven. It's not. It's about being in right relationship with God, and out of that, being in right relationship with all things, including myself. And I think that this book has the potential to change people. And the, the, the worry that I have as I'm reading certain things is that there are aspects of the work that just Darren just hasn't done. And I think that that's, um, it's undercutting the validity, the good direction that he's taken. So for example, you know, the comment you made before reading on Amazon about the lack of scriptural references. I mean, man, you're really good to give personal examples. And I really love what Darren does in here. I truly uh, value some of the personal references he's given and personal examples. But when he tries to make some comments about who God is, and I'm thinking about, you know, chapter five, um, the jealous God. And, um, I have been really disappointed in what he's trying to do and, and the direction he's going in. Um, mostly because I don't think, I think that the, 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 the picture that the Bible paints of God in, um, the relationships that God establishes with, with human beings and how this idea of jealousy comes in. First of all, I think Darren has completely misportrayed the idea of, of jealousy. I think he's exaggerated it. And I think exaggeration, unfortunately, is something I've seen through a couple of these chapters where he's taken an idea. He talks about our generation. He's globalizing. Globalizing and exaggeration tends to, tends to be something I've, I've seen through these chapters. And that doesn't help this case because it makes his points dismissible. 
It seems that each of these chapters is kind of a personal rant against his experience in churches or Christian circles. And so I think he's using the personal examples to counter those misguided things that he has experienced. But I think what he's doing is he's countering them with personal examples. And what you're saying is the personal examples are helpful in many cases. However, they only get you about 90% there and close the other 10%. It would probably be a good idea or it is a good idea to bring in some other supporting evidence and that evidence coming from the Bible. Exactly. I have, I think I haven't paid enough attention to your comments actually, because you've, you've said this a couple of times and you've made a couple, you've, you've stated it pretty clearly that, you know, on the one hand, Darren's, Darren's example of being in churches like this and, and you said, Hey, you know, this is obviously his, his experience, but I can't relate to this. And I've kind of thought to myself, well, yeah, maybe not, but, um, you know, it's, I'm glad he's giving us some, personal examples and, and and we'll see where we go. And I guess the observation that's beginning to form, and it may become a conclusion depending upon how the book goes on and finishes, is that he's been very careful with his own experiences and he's relaying them to us, I think, in a pretty clear way. But I think what I'm seeing is that I'm, as I mentioned, is he's kind of globalizing these experiences. And what I want him to do is generalize from the experiences. Yeah, that part I'm not comfortable with. I'm not comfortable with God feels this way about this generation or we all end up looking at God this way because of X. No, and and I guess my point is I don't think it works for anybody that it doesn't work for, which isn't trying to be circular, but which is trying to say, you know, <laughs> essentially... found, Greg. <laughs> hey, you know me. <laughs> but really, if you come from a background that's really like his, it's like, okay, Robert Parker. I enjoy wine, right? I used to import wine from France. And a lot of people would say, what does Robert Parker give this wine? How does he rate it? On the one hand, Robert Parker is a guy who spent a lot of time tasting different wines. Now, I have absolutely no doubt that when Robert Parker, who's been doing this for decades, gives a wine, a 94 out of 100, that for Robert Parker, that wine is worth, wait for it, 94 out of 100. But for Greg Monteith, number one, do I like what he likes? So when you're tasting wine, one of the things I like with a wine is when it has a certain bouquet, certain nose, we call it. I like just sitting there. I don't like drinking a lot of my wine. If it's, if it's got a nice nose, I like it just to sit in the glass because there's only so much of it in the bottle and I'm always sharing it with lots of people. I want it to sit in the glass and I want to smell it. That, mean, that means a lot to me. What a wine smells like means a lot to me because I don't always have the chance to have a lot of wine. Now, for Robert Parker, how it smells may not be quite as important. I think he's a pretty rich guy and he can buy a fair bit of wine. So it might be more important to him how it tastes. And certain parts of the taste might be more important to him than others because there are different aspects. Does it have a lot of oak? Does it not? Is it complex? Is it not? Is it fairly fruity? Or is it more sort of vegetal? Is it more sort of... Uh, um, you know, complex and tobacco-y? Does it have, you know, wood, rubber? It's kind of these different strange smells that kind of Moldy barnyard. Moldy barnyard, exactly. (laughs) But what I'm getting to add is is that when Robert Parker rates a wine, don't think that unless you have exactly the same taste as he does, which would be pretty tough to figure out, that 
it's going to be the same for you. I'm not saying that if Robert Parkett rates one wine 99 and he rates another nine wine 59, that you're going to have to have a guessing game as to which wine you're going to prefer. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that some of these specifics relate to him and not to you. And it's the same thing with Darren. And what I want out of, out of something like this, and uh, I'm being really definite about this because this is exactly the, the exercise that I had to do. I had some life-changing experiences of God that took place, by and large, in Switzerland at Labrie. I included those in my master's thesis. I did not include a single incident, however. I included them instead by generalizing them. So instead of giving the experiences and globalizing, i.e. saying these happen to everybody, I gave nothing because in that particular context, in that academic context, it was not appropriate. Instead, I had to generalize out of those experiences and take things out of those experiences. And I did that by interacting with the Bible, by interacting with certain philosophers and thinkers and trying to say, this is something that's typical of this type of experience. And when we have these types of, these types of experiences, again, it's types, using typologies and general ideas, we can understand them better if we do X or Y. So I was building a certain case from my experience, but not doing it directly, doing it indirectly. And I really value that this is not an academic book. I'm, I'm serious about that. The Misunderstood God, not an academic book and good, right? Because in an academic context, it's, it can be tough to bring in personal experiences of pain and hurt and such. It's just, it's hard to finesse that into an academic context. You have more liberty in a book like this. Kudos, great, fantastic, and that he's done it and he's brought it in. But the problem is the applicability of what he said is diminished. And, and the issue for me is I think there's high applicability for some of his experiences if he were to take a more general path. It wouldn't allow him to swing the hammer as hard. And I think this is what's happening. He wants to swing the hammer hard. He wants to really hit the heart, hammer hard. But you know what happens. If you go to the fair and you're trying to swing the hammer hard on that, like, you know, make the thing go up and hit the bell. The harder you try and go, the less control you have. And he's lost in accuracy. And it's that loss in accuracy that I'm saying, hey, you know what, man? Don't try and make this a one hit of the hammers rings the bell. Well, we kind of experienced the same thing in Not a Fan, but in a different direction. It was, ex- it was just as over-exaggerated and extreme there. Although I guess what we found there was, it was there were attempts to support it with Scripture that we just couldn't get behind. Yeah, they seemed... Um, Contrived. Yeah, and just really partial. You know, it's like, well, what about these other verses? Why didn't you, and they they contradict your position? Why didn't you? Why didn't you even acknowledge that they existed? Let alone kind of try to, you know, build the dialogue a little bit. So go back to your your Parker example, though. As you're talking, though, about well, you know, you value the bouquet, and maybe he doesn't. The suspicion that starts to creep in there for me as you're talking is, well, this mm. is all subjective. You know, you want to place an emphasis on the bouquet, and he doesn't. And so, uh, I mean, how do we determine where to place the emphasis here? Well, I think you... you Because if it's just like whatever you like versus whatever he likes, then how are we not uh, approaching God in the same way? Sure. Okay. Well, uh, on the Parker... So let me me go back to the Parker example, and then I'll translate it into the, the Darren Hufford, the kind of Christian 
Christianity example. Uh, with Robert Parker, one of the issues is that his scoring is too granular. So the difference between a 93 and a 94, well, I, can I, like, and I'm skilled, right? I have two certificates in wine. I've imported and provided wine to major uh, four-star restaurants in Toronto. I've got a lot of background with this. I've, I've worked in the trade. Can I determine if I was to taste two wines? Let's, let's say you had a whole table of wines, and I didn't know which was which, and one table was 93, and one table was 94, as rated by Robert Parker. Would I be able to, to determine the difference? I do not think so. I just don't think so. So the scale's too granular. And this is what I mean about generalizing. Back off somewhat of the specifics. And if you want to tell me a wine's worth, even I, I would use a smaller scale. I would use like a 10-point scale or even a 5-point scale. But if you want to use a, if you want to tell me a wine's a 90 versus a 95, use a 20-point scale. It's a 20 out of 20. It's a 19. It's a, And you want to tell me how you weight that scale? Then I can work with that, right? Back off a little bit. And then I think, we can have something that's a little more, a little more uh, general, and and it, it it's properly able to be taken in by a much larger audience, right? It's it's applicable. Are you saying then that he's been Darren has been so specific in his examples and so specific in the ways that we've quote been lied to about God that they're too specific and too granular? On the one hand, yeah, I think so. So he's given us some stuff from his background that may or may not apply. Well, you know what? Great. Give us stuff from your background. But can you think of other things that are similar to this that other people have experienced that might affect them the same way? So it's not necessarily about the experience per se, but it could be about the effect on the person. You've talked to a lot of people, Darren. I mean, I I know I've read five chapters of this. I know he's counseled hundreds of people that he's been in touch with thousands of people. Can you not draw from that? And tell me from somebody else's experience, you know, without telling me who they are, tell me, draw something out, generalize, generalize, right? Open this up to me in a way that doesn't make it so that, you know, I'm part of this generation that's been lied to in this particular way and that's taken things in. And I think this is what's happened with Darren. He hasn't, and I'm going to be, yeah, I'm going to be critical for a minute. What is annoying me in part about the book and it's also annoying me about the potential, the book's potential to reach people that I really think the book can reach and needs to be reached, need to be reached by the book. What's annoying me is that because he's, he's fixed on these particular examples and he's kind of, um, drilling down into these examples and into these specific situations, he's, he's miscasting the situation so that people who are quite close to him, who might otherwise be able to kind of cotton onto this, idea, right? I think, I think everybody needs to, could benefit from this. I don't know that everybody, even if he was to generalize it well, if he was to support it with scripture, and if he was to do what I think really would be a, a little more philosophical work. It doesn't have to be philosophical. It just has to say, it has to ask some of these more general questions. And that tends to be a bit philosophical in nature. If he was to do that, I don't think he's going to reach everybody that the book should reach. But I think it could touch people who right now are tantalizingly close to his position. But for the reasons I've mentioned, we'll feel that the book just, it's not building, it's not building a strong enough case. No, I think I'm that, per I think I'm one of those people because I was reading this before bed and I was <laughs> like, I was sometimes I would just laugh out loud. I'm like, Tommy, you got to hear this. 
<laughs> Listen to the way he presents this. But there was always kind of a sense of, it was more almost reading the book as thrill-seeking in the sense that it was kind of fun to read the sensational way that he would present different things and some of his examples made you think and there's kind of a sense of relief of like, yeah, that is such a ridiculous concept and the illustration you just gave illustrates why it's so ridiculous. And yet I always felt like there was something missing too. My experience of what this thing that you're talking about for me is instead of having this sort of laugh out loud moment, I'm like, you know, as I've said before, I'll just, I'll have this, this inner sort of affirmation. Yeah, that's really true. And, and then another, oh, good point. And, and then on the next one, it's like, huh? And, and it's, it's this kind of, it's like, a, it's like I'm stuttering or it's like I'm stumbling, right? I walk along and I sort of stumble. It's like my laces are untied or I'm walking on a sidewalk with a lot of ice on it. And, uh, it's, it's frustrating. The experience of reading for me, the reading this is frustrating because I do agree generally. And then I get certain parts, certain of his points and, and, and I'm waiting to see what he's going to do next. And, and I think in each case so far, I've been disappointed. Not totally like he, you know, kind of does a 180 on me, but there's these kind of, he, he kind of veers in these different directions and he casts things in such a way where I'm thinking, you know, I don't think that jealousy is like that in chapter five, or, um, I don't think in chapter four that, um, this is what it means for us to have got hold of this idea of God's love as not being kind. And so, you know, I think the value for me personally, first of all, I, I applaud him. I sincerely applaud him through everything critical that I'm seeing. I applaud him. I, uh, you know, what he's, the direction he's taking is a direction that I think is incredibly valuable. And, and I've really tried to foster and develop in my own thinking and writing. And, and it's great that he's got this out there as a book. You know, I think that's fantastic. My concern, and, and maybe the other thing, the other thing I guess for me is this, as I mentioned to you earlier, because I, my sense of my uh, orientation is I'm going in the same general direction in terms of, you know, focusing on, on God's love and God's truth, right? Um, but I think love has been underemphasized. And so we need to sort of bring that out more. And, and so I'm really um, sympathetic with that. But on the other hand, I guess it's also giving me the opportunity, reading Darren Hufford's book has given me the opportunity where I disagree with him to really try to finesse, well, where would you go, Greg? You know, what are you saying? This bugs you. Why is that? So it's been a very helpful thing for me. So do that with five. Do that with this section on jealousy. jealousy? Yeah. I mean, well, I have two thoughts. Yeah. One thought I have is I wonder if we'd be better off for our listeners to read the whole book and then discuss it or then I don't know. I mean, it'd be interesting to get some comments on this from people. Yeah. Do people want to hear the blow by blow on a book that we're reading or things that we're thinking about? Or do they want us to have gotten to the end and be able to give the full picture versus speculate about how the end might come about? Well, you know, I, I, th I think this book is going to be one of the hardest ones that we do. Really? Yeah. For me personally, 
Because again, there, there's so many things that are so close. And I don't want to just say, so when I, I describe the experience of reading as almost a yes, yes, huh? I don't want to just say, well, I, what I would have done, Darren, instead on your third point where I went, huh, is I would have said X instead of Y. I don't want to just do that because it's not about just sort of being critical of Darren. It's about what I really want to do is I want to say, I would have said X instead of Y because this is the end point I'm going to. And this is where I think on the one hand, your book goes and the direction you're taking. And then if I were to do what my sensei did, that original example that I gave of him saying, how would you turn it a couple of degrees, Greg, and point your middle finger towards, towards his back? If I were to have done that in terms of his book, where would I go, right? So it's not only saying, I would say X and not Y, but at the end, here's the difference that I think it makes. Here's why I'm advocating that. Here's why I think that if you, to use this example, take these three points and line them up the way Greg's suggesting, as opposed to the way Darren's suggesting, here's why I think you get closer to understanding God in a real way, to understanding yourself and being in right relationship with yourself, with others in your world, in the fullest possible way. So are you ready to do that job or do we need more time? Okay. Why don't we try some of it? Okay. I'm going to take like two points in there and just look at those and we can look at them together? Yeah. Okay. So chapter five is called The Jealous God? Question mark. So he starts off with a story of himself and his brother, right? And how he's a, he's a funny guy. And everybody likes hearing his stories and his jokes until his brother, who's a musician, starts to play the piano. And then people are completely enamored with his brother's fabulous piano playing. There's a big party at his house or something. And so he's jealous of his brother because his brother steals a show. One of the things that I worry about is that when we formulate something, when we say we're talking about jealousy, and so formulating jealousy is really defining it. It's defining jealousy and it's putting it kind of, it's like making a working model of it. It's both writing out what it is, and then it's making a working model so you can see it in action. And you kind of create these little, I don't know, scenarios. So he did one for us with this story of him and his brother. But then he goes on and he talks about on page 48, he talks about envy is ugly and self-serving. And, and at its core, it's jealousy. So envy leads to jealousy. Envy and jealousy are anti-relationship. And at the end of this paragraph there, I'm in the middle of page 48, born out of self-love, um, it leaves nothing for the other person. Nothing can survive. And I guess right away, my thought there is, I don't, I don't think that envy and jealousy comes out of self-love. Because self-love, I think, is a good thing. So, okay, I'll just make that comment. That's, that's my, you know, it just, it's, it's a kind of a flag that goes up and I, I kind of put my, my mark in the, in the margins of a situation like that is two question marks together, which means not too sure on this one. I'll leave that one go on uh, and come back to it. Maybe, um, he talks about the bottom of page 48 and page 49. He goes on to talk about, um, the relationship between, uh, you know, that he, he writes here, at the bottom of page 48, our generation doesn't believe that love is possible between a man and a woman without the initial presence of lust. So he's talking about physical attraction, talking about lust, talking about women trying on jeans and looking at uh, their backsides, talking about them trying on blouses and checking their cleavages. 
And then he makes this, this kind of comment, middle of page 49. The problem with inner treasures is that they can't be possessed by another person for personal gratification. Now here again, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what he's talking about. I, I don't understand how he can believe what he's written. I'll say it a little more strongly. And I, I'm building a case here. I'm not just sort of picking little points here and whatever, but I'm, I'm walking, I guess, you through my process of reading this and my process of developing some concern with what he's saying and then ultimately where I'm going to go with that. So the second point is this idea that um, inner treasures can't be possessed by another person for personal gratification. And I wrote, inner treasure can be snuffed out, demeaned, disregarded, it can be exploited just as significantly as a person's physicality or sexuality. So again here, I guess this is part of me saying, you know, I don't think Darren's done his work. He's, he's, he's looked at a particular situation and he's saying, this is how it is, and he's kind of globalized it. Instead of trying to think, well, okay, well, is that really the case? Does someone's kindness, generosity, their inner treasure, if you like, according to you know, his words, can that, is that something that's not exploited in, in almost the same way? Well, it's been exploited. <laughs> I've experienced that in my life. <laughs> so, um, and then he writes down at the next paragraph. And again, we're, we're now we're moving towards God. We're taking these views and these perceptions and we're moving towards God. Because people believe that love does envy, they attribute it to God's character as well. This for me is, is right where I would want to introduce some biblical references. What, what, what do we have about God and envy or God and jealousy? And I, I don't think that this is the case at all. I now, don't this think- is really this is really interesting because, yeah, so far as you've been noting things, I flew right past those things. I was just kind of reading it at a high level when you right. when you call out that section about because people believe that love does that love does envy. It's like, well, ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. Here's a very broad generalization that yeah, I don't agree with. Yeah. So it's well, like because X, Y. Like, yes. well, I don't agree with X. Exactly. So now, exactly. but what's funny is, yeah, see, I think I was, re- going back to my earlier comment about enjoying when he brings the hammer down, I think I'm just kind of flying through these different sections, just kind of looking for the punchline and looking for where he's going. And I skipped right over those sections. It, it, and, you know, I think that's valid in a, because in a real way, the hammer needs to get brought down. And I'm not against him bringing down the hammer, and I'm not against where he's hitting it in general. (laughs) I'm just saying, man, you have an audience. You've written a book here. I've bought your book. I found it on Amazon. You have the power to change me. So please swing your hammer well. Swing it well because I think this is an incredibly important thing you're doing, and the subject is incredibly important. People need to hear this message. And don't, by the way you're swinging your hammer, don't make them put your book down, you know, or don't make them think that it's about, you know, just like, hey, some, some various punchlines that, you know, oh, yeah, this is kind of interesting. Yeah, I guess, we, I guess we shouldn't be singing Christian songs, just that all have to do with Jesus, which is his comment on the next page, page 51. But, um, but yeah, I mean, like people believe that love does envy. Because people believe that love does envy, they attribute its character to God as well. No, 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 because we read in the Bible, you know, I am a jealous God. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And we haven't done, I think there's some exegetical, important exegetical work that has, and f- work of formulation, formulating those, that, that exegesis 
that needs to be done that hasn't been done by and large. We just take it and sort of apply it. Wait, wait. I mean, if uh, and I did a tiny bit of work on this, just word, ah. you know, not a ton. In fact, I say very little. The idea of God being a jealous God, I don't know where I first heard that, but if mm-hmm. if you were to say, John, is that a concept that you heard in church or is this is this, you know, one of the attributes of God is that he's jealous. I'd be like, well, yeah, yeah. Well, why? I don't know. That's just what I always heard and what I was, what I was always taught. And so I went looking. I just did a, there's some website called, I think it's called Bible Gateway, and you can type in a word and it will show you all the places it appears in the Bible. Yeah. And I started looking at some of those and I thought it was kind of, it was, it's much more nuanced. I think the way that it's, generally presented in wider Christian circles is God is a jealous God, meaning almost that God, it's kind of, now that I think about it, I'm just thinking out loud as I'm talking. Well, now I'm seeing the tie into pride. It's this idea that God is God, and so it can only be about him. Yeah. Isn't that where, like, I'm not sure I'm making a lot of sense here. Well, what you're describing sounds a lot like uh, sounds a lot like Darren's categorization here when he's talking about the jealous husband. Yeah, you know, they, like his wife can't have any friends or can't do any of these sorts of things. You know, and I, and I guess for me, again, this isn't jealousy. This is possessiveness. Yes, power mongering. This is being controlling. This is manipulative. But it's not jealousy. No, and I guess I, just to close up my thought, I think what what occurs to me is these big hand wavy themes come out. You know, God is a jealous God, and therefore blah blah blah, whatever. And and I feel like people just nod their heads like, oh yeah, uh, something else I came across um, <laughs> elsewhere, which is a topic for another day. And I think kind of came out of this is the idea that we are quote commanded to worship God. Yeah. You know, God commands us to worship him, and and we're here this Sunday, and we're going to worship him together. Really? Where does it say that? (laughs) So I I did, you know, 10, 15 minutes last night, I was, did another, I I looked up all the instances of worship, and what does worship mean? And wow, so much nuance, and so much, uh, oh, I came across an article that's probably worthy of multiple podcasts that you'll love by your good friend John Piper. (laughs) <laughs> oh, man. I'm being facetious. Greg is not a John Piper fan, I found. It's pretty old, but it's, yeah, this is a whole tangent. But it was fascinating to me to listen to part of the sermon, to read the whole write-up on the web of why we're commanded to worship God. And it was like, wait a minute. It was, I don't know, it was just a classic treatment of a couple verses. The word worship was in the verse, uh, Jesus was talking. It was where uh, Jesus was talking to Satan, and I have the reference in front of me. But uh, Jesus is saying to Satan, "You know, we're we're supposed to worship God, not other mm. things." All right. And, and so, anyway, Piper's building his whole case around this one part of this one verse that we're quote commanded to worship God. Now, I'm not saying we're. I don't know where I am on this topic, but now I've really led us off into the weeds. But in Matthew four. Yeah, I read, I read that. It's 4, 8 to 11. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, the and then there's him. some interesting tie-ins. Well, I don't know if there's tie-in, but the, the footnote was to Deuteronomy 6, 4, and then also 13. It, it, yeah, this takes us in a completely different direction. And I think 
I got onto this idea because I was reading, I was in chapter six. Yeah, in chapter six, it's called The Proud God. He's mm-hmm. riffing on, I think he's riffing on the idea of worship and mm-hmm. why God created us. And some people say, well, you know, God created us to worship him. And he's like, huh? Now, I've heard that my whole life. Yeah, that's God created us so that we could worship him. And it comes back to the whole God is jealous and all these other things that being away from all of this and just kind of sitting here and just pondering this, I think, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Really? Uh, Like, this is, this does really bear more consideration. It, it, well, it does. And it, not to it, get it, out of it and not to say, oh, I don't have to worship God, but just to say, really? I mean, is this true? Well, you know, and some of this too, and this is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about formulation and the philosophical character of it. Because, you know, for the longest time when we're thinking about, and I, I do mean literally, for, for, for centuries when Christians have been thinking about creation, they have thought about it through the lens of Augustine's work. And I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with Augustine's work. It's not wrong. It's incomplete. And we've taken it, though, as though it were complete. And what I'm referring to is this, you know, this idea of how did God create? And we've talked about this a while back, but even in that very question, that question is limiting by its very nature. How did God create? Well, God created ex nihilo. This was very important for Augustine to formulate because, of course, he's in the, uh, he's writing this stuff in the mid to late fourth century, you know, and he wrote into the 5th century, but at this point, mid to late 4th. And he's really, really having to fight back, push back hard against the, the Neoplatonics, uh, chief among whom might be Plotinus. So a Neoplatonic thinker in the Platonics, I mean, Plato had this idea that there was kind of the divine, like entities, divine beings, but there's also this matter. And matter wasn't sentient, but it was somehow, it had always been there, right? It was this primordial stuff. And that's how the world was made. And so there was this kind of, um, I don't know, similarity, kind of, you know, equality of, of almost d- divinity between this primordial stuff and, and the gods, right? It wasn't sentient stuff, but it had always been around. It had the hallmarks of being eternal. And so Augustine is very careful to say, no, 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 no. God didn't. There, there was... God is God. That's it. There's nothing else. There's no stuff. There's no other gods. Forget it. God created ex nihilo out of nothing. And again, we've forgotten on uh, that that question is not how did God create is not sufficient. It does not describe the matter. It does not give us everything we need. Because in addition to that, and I think preceding that, there's the question, why did God create? And here's where I'm going to tie in with your thing about Piper or this notion of, you know, being created to worship God. The notion of why is both why, out of what impetus, and for what purpose, right? There are two notions to why here. Why did you do it means what what prompted you to do that? And why did you do it being what is the ultimate goal of that? They're related, but they're distinct. Yeah, I'll be curious when we get to this section because so Hufford contends, he says, why did God, I'm on page 72, yeah. Why did God create us? Because love requires expression. Sure, he had relationships with angels, and who knows what other creatures. Wait, but- stop. <laughs> stop. Do you agree with that or not? Read it again. Read it again. Why did God create us? Because love requires expression. That is 
beautiful. I thought you might like it. That is one of the things where this guy... But again, there's no... There's no... It's it's all his assertion. I mean, I thought... I, when I read that, I thought, I've never really thought about the why, because it's just assumed. I mean, God created us because he could. And so he did. And because he did, we should worship him. And it's that simple. So when I read that, I thought, that is interesting. That's That sounds like something Greg might agree with. We'll have to see. Man, it's it's got my it's got my my color that only comes out once or twice. Some books never get it. My special mauve. <laughs> it's got my my highest designation in the margin for important thing. I thought mauve was a very negative. No, mauve is mauve is ultra important. Okay, I use blue and pencil. I remember but... not a fan got some mauve, and that was a very tragic situation. <sighs> oh yeah, I think that was the. <laughs> page 21 of not a fan it okay. got some both but it got unhappy marks in the margin very unhappy <laughs> <laughs> i, I think we need this. to post some pictures of your book your book <laughs> markings this sounds very intricate <laughs> that's how i kept myself saying we could use that as the, the featured picture for each blog post that give the notes for this episode well the, 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 you know this is this is why i love this guy this is beautiful. Yeah, so, you love it so funny. I do. I think he's. I think he's doing some fantastic stuff, and he's got. He's got some great. He's done some great stuff here, and he's uh, clearly he's got some great personal experience. But but some of the direction he's taking, and the formulation or lack thereof, and the the lack of scriptural reference to, they're all hurting him. They're all hurting him, and and I wonder too, if he just can't. If it's, I, I'm doubting this is going to draw together in in the way that I think it could and should at the end but you know i won't i'm doubting it now but we'll see i'll I'll hold myself open to but the whole idea like you know so as i was saying in terms of um you know piper and we're made to worship god here you know why did god create us because love requires expression i mean the parallel with augustine how did god real quick though piper's not piper's not saying that we were created to worship him oh he's He's going down a different track. I just want to be clear on that. Oh, okay, interesting. I would have thought he would have said that. Uh, maybe he does, but in the article that I was reading, he was—I don't believe he was saying that. I just okay. want to be clear. Okay, good enough. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So, take Piper out of that and just say for those who kind of have that view. But it's—it's it's like the, you know the parallel with Augustine. God, how did God create ex amore? Why, in other words. From what impetus did God create ex amore, not ex nihilo, ex amore, out of love? God created out of love. You know, the whole thing of God so loved the, the world, that, you know, and that, that's, that's the renewal. That's the renewal of that love seen as Jesus, uh, who is the Christ, who is the one who is making this covenant. He's renewing this covenant. Who is, who is fulfilling the covenant? God displaying God's covenant faithfulness. So put this in simple terms for simple people like me. The, the, <laughs> so the Platonic or Plato's view and Augustine's view is that God creates out of nothing just because he can. And you're saying, yeah. no, there's a, which is ex nihilo. Yeah. And there's, you're saying, no, there's, there's actually another view, which is he created out of love, out of expression, which is called 
ex amore. And how do we know that? Why is that view true and this other view isn't? Well, is that where you're going? No, no, it's not where I'm going. I think I think Augustine's right, but I'm saying the question of how only covers how. It does not cover why. Why is a separate uh-huh. question? Why so did you do it? So you, that's a category mistake. It's a category mistake to think that we have finished off, we've kind of s- sealed off our understanding of that area. We've got it all together. If we're only going on the idea of how. I'm not suggesting that Augustine's wrong. I think he's dead right. I'm suggesting he's incomplete. But we as Christians, and this is part of the problem. This is, I think, a far larger problem. And this is, a pro- I think, the problem that Darren would be better. I think this is the real problem. It's underneath what Darren's saying is, you know, we've accepted this lie, we've accepted that lie. I think we have been, I think people have misconceptions about who God is, and they've, those misconceptions of, are, are causing problems. But I think... Well, I don't know that they've been like lies. I think the misconceptions no. have built on misconceptions. Yes. So in other words, if you come to me and just say, hey, John, would you agree that this is a common notion that, that God is a jealous God? I'd say, yeah, yeah, totally. But again, where does that come from? What's it based on? And how have we understood that? So it's, it's, I guess what I'm saying is this idea that the, our understanding of God's action in creation is complete with Augustine's formulation. That is a huge issue. And if you go forward with that understanding of completeness, you are necessarily going to lack some things because, hello, it ain't complete. It's just not. You have not touched on the question of why. And that question should be something. In other words, if I was to say to you, if I was to say to most Christians who have any sort of academic background at all, you know, how did God create? People will parrot back this idea of ex nihilo. It's just a known stance. It's a known orientation within Christianity. If I were to ask, why did God create? I get either hesitation or a variety of different answers. Oh, I'll tell you, I'll tell you another one. We can't ask, we, we don't need to ask why and we shouldn't ask why. The fact that God did it and said it is the end of it. You see, and, and this... Who are we? We're just mere humans. And I mean, you and me, we're just finite, you know, two yahoos on the internet that posted a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> two yahoos. So, I mean, you know, uh-huh. it's this... Yeah. <laughs> No, but I've I've seen this stated, you know. There is no why. John, there is I'm, no question of why do this, why do that. It's God commanded it, you just do it. I am almost I'm almost dancing here. You you were fantastic. <laughs> You're totally fantastic. Because this this is it. This really? this for me, yes. This for me is it. This example with Augustine and this idea that the only thing we need to think about is how. And that why is either, like you say, or some people you've heard say, is unknowable, or that it's somehow, like, I, I would feel, personally, seriously, if, if I don't understand, maybe this is a better way of saying it, I don't understand why, if I'm having a conversation with someone who is, uh, let's say a pastor, someone who's done some seminary work, I'm assuming that most pastors have, and uh, who spent some time in their Bible, and if I'm to ask them a question, you know, if I just ask them two questions, how did God create the universe? And and most people will give me six they don't days. Give me the, the world's well, <laughs> if they, if they, they give me that, but if they don't give me 
ex nihilo, they're going to give me essentially, they're going to, you know, paraphrase it. But, you know, I don't understand why when I ask this, when I ask the question of how, and they don't have a sort of, not a ready answer, but a ready understanding that can be formulated into a, maybe a number of different answers, depending upon who their audience is. I don't understand why they don't feel like they're standing out in public with no pants on. Why, why though? Why, why does it matter how? I mean, we'll never know anyway. I mean, well, maybe someday we will, but there's no way to prove it conclusively. We weren't there's, there. There's no way to prove the other one conclusively either. I wasn't there to say, to say there was no primordial stuff there. But I believe that. I believe that because it makes sense and it coheres with the picture of God that I've been given through this text. And when you look at the picture of God that you've been given through this text, which is crucial for your understanding of your relationship with God, how can you not? How can that question not be huge and burgeoning for you? Why did God do all this in the first place? What's going on? What does this all mean? You know, I'm look, I walk, drive down my street, I see the Alpha Course, like these little posters for the Alpha Course, you know, get to know Christianity through the Alpha Course. And the subtext there, the subtitle is Question Everything. And I wonder if I walked in and I asked that question, what they'd say. <laughs> in other words, the very basis for my relationship, for my existence with God, which precedes my, my, my relationship with God, and the existence of this entire planet, universe, etc., is predicated on one question. Why did God do it? Why? If I don't have a, if I don't have a sense of that or a belief in, of, of what the answer is, that's my initial starting point. That's my initial trajectory. It's my orientation, right? And if you want to point me towards north and you're ending up pointing me towards east, I am never getting to north if I follow that orientation. And that for me is the issue that we're dealing with here. And that for me is also why I am having problems with Darren. Because what I'm <laughs> so, seeing so is a I lack. am having problems with Darren. <laughs> I'm having problems with Darren. I like Darren. I'm like, you know what? Page we got to meet him. <laughs> I do. I do. Page 72. When I read page 72 of, of The Misunderstood God, this will be as quoted for me, perhaps, maybe not quite perhaps, but almost as page 21 from Not a Fan. This is, that's huge. I mean, I love, I love that. I love this guy. I think he's dead on there. But I'm having problems because I think what's really happening here is that we have accepted as complete notions within Christianity that are incomplete, that are partial. And because we don't have the other parts, when we get to things that rest upon them, that are that should be grounded upon those foundational ideas, we're shaky. We're iffy. We're not too sure. Or we start doing stuff like saying, oh, you can't know that. Really? Where does God's love come from for you? And that's why these people are having such a freaking hard time with God's love. If you understand that from the beginning it began that way, you don't have such a hard time with that. Or then you say, or if you don't have such a hard that's time, that's interesting. That's that's. Huh. I've never, I've never really. Well, maybe never. I don't remember ever really thinking about why. Yeah, because it's this. You don't need to ask why. But and the the thing about why why did God's love come from or where did it come about? If you were asking me that question, I'd say, well, it came about because of sin, and that's why Jesus died on the cross out of love. So that's how Jesus, God, expressed his love. He saved us from eternal torment and hell. 
Hold on, can I can I try something? Try it. Huh? <laughs> How'd I do? <laughs> Pretty good. Okay. <laughs> Seriously, come back to me again on that one. I so God's love came out of sin. No, that's that's how that's how God expressed His love. That's one way that God expressed His love. Okay. Sure, but but before that, but but so I guess what's hitting me is profound is yeah. the idea that that this all began because of love. The world, us, humanity, the earth. That that's the that the genesis is love. Bingo. If that's true, I'm not claiming that it is. I have something new to ponder though. Yeah, there's a book. I think the most important thing that one of my uh, second reader of my thesis did is he put me on to a book. And I think this book is one of the best books on God and love, perhaps ever written. It is short, non-academic, and relatively unknown. What's it called? Love's Endeavor, Love's Expense. The Response of Being to the Love of God. The guy tells a story, this minister tells a story of it's, um, I don't know if it's like, he's, he's in England. So it's whatever the equivalent might be, whether it's a, a March break equivalent or it's a summer holiday equivalent. And two students are um, engaged in a project and it's a school project. And uh, somehow he's, I'm not sure if it's, it's a big diorama and if it's, uh, if it's maybe in the church basement or he somehow has access to this, this fellow does, and sees its progress, its progression and, and sees to them, you know, as they're working on it. And he, he, he begins over the course of, it's a long period for its completion, and he, and he begins to realize that these boys are, they're going way above and beyond. And what's, you know, he begins to sort of question this process. Why are they doing this? Why are they putting all this extra work in? And, and ultimately what he comes down to and what he begins to understand is that within the process of creation and creativity, love is hallmark. Love is central to that process. That process is essentially an expression of love. You know, that the boys aren't concerned so much with their mark or showing off or with many other things that they could be, but there is something that is deeply related to love in the process of creating and creativity. Thanks for listening to the Untangling Christianity podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So leave a comment on the website at untanglingchristianity.com slash 45. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are released or other news, subscribe to our mailing list, also available in the right sidebar of the website. We welcome your questions, comments, or suggested future discussion topics by email. Send those to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is made possible by Kevin McLeod over at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Tune in next week for a new episode.